every single person in our venture fund, including our executive assistant, has carried interest in our venture fund. I feel strongly about that. You're a part of the team. When a founder calls and they need to reach one of the deal leads, I want you just as passionate and understanding why and why it's important as as maybe the deal lead themselves would be. And I project that onto the leaders of the companies. And if I find a founder who their whole objective is to keep all the equity for them and not democratize that when their team, that tells me a lot about them. Hello and welcome to Funded, a podcast sponsored by Pixel Recess. I started this because I wanted to hear the real stories behind deals that you hear about in the news. I, I wanted to talk to the investors, talk to the companies, find out things that are real and useful and leverageable, not just hype and spin. This season, we're focusing on Atlanta. And our first discussion is with Mark Buffington, the founder of VIP Capital. VIP Capital is now the most active venture investor in Georgia and one of the largest investors in the Southeast. We talk about Mark's background, how he views founders, what he thinks makes a good deal, what he thinks of the Atlanta market in general. It's a great conversation. So here is Mark Buffington. I'm Mark Buffington. I'm the founder of VIP Capital. We founded the business in 2007. And we've, we really started with humble beginnings. The business really started out of my living room, funding just a couple of deals with small capital. Fast forward to today, we're the most active venture firm in the region and, and really on this side of the country and growing rapidly. Our home base is in Atlanta, and Atlanta's been great to us. I spent 10 years in the Bay Area before moving back to Atlanta, really as an angel investor. And I can't say enough good things about Atlanta. The markets are different. There's every bit as much opportunity to create handsome returns on capital here in Atlanta as there is in the Bay Area. We don't necessarily have the big outsized wins uh, potential that they do on the West Coast, but uh, I think consistency in, is much higher in kind of rise of the rest or second tier innovation centers. And certainly Atlanta's proved that for us. And so it's been a, a great place to call home, and, and we're really excited about the next 10 years here in Atlanta and, and the other markets we operate in. So tell me more about that history. Uh, um, you and I are the same age. When, when you got out of school, what were you thinking you were going to do? I had no idea. So I played <laughs> baseball. Yeah, so, you, you were going to be a baseball uh, player? Yeah, exactly, or at least in my mind. But I played baseball at Georgia Tech when it became obvious that wasn't going to be a career. I lived overseas. Went back to graduate school, got recruited out west. My background okay. is econometric, a fancy word for statistics applied to, yeah, to economics. Right. But um, you know, went into a went into a hedge fund and made a little money and started investing in angel deals. And a couple of them panned out. And I just looked in the mirror and said, "Gosh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life." I just love helping people build things and strategize and whiteboarding and figuring out how to solve problems. And so we parlayed that into and essentially a venture capitalist with just shy of a billion under management and growing. There are always people that listen to things like this, that love the idea of being in venture capital. What about that process that you followed is replicable? Anything? What are some principles you can pull out of how you got to where you are doing what you're doing that if somebody thought they wanted to try to follow those, what's something that they could actually do? I think there's two ways 
in as a venture capitalist. There's more, but I'll just simplify. One bookend is you come out of a graduate school or you have some finance background or operating background that is specific to a given space. And you basically just go apply for a job at a venture capital firm. If you're lucky enough to get it, you start as an analyst, you go to associate, climb up the ladder and maybe become a partner in that. And, and, you know, we certainly see that path from people. It's definitely not the path that I took. The other uh, bookend is you buy your way into the market, (laughs) which I mentioned my background was in hedge fund management. And so I just started doing angel deals and really bought my way in. And I mean, with small dollars, relatively small dollars to start, I think my first investment into a startup was $7,500. And you think, I, I you think that's, 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 that's still small. possible? I do. One might have to join a syndicate, a small right. group of people to do it. But let's just say you had five to seven people that were cobbling together $10,000, give or take, to get into a deal. And they split up kind of the management and the monitoring of that deal. You know, that's not too far off from the check that Y Combinator's cutting uh, sure. to get into deals at those early stages. And so... No, I, I think it's absolutely possible if somebody has a good eye for deals. And so, yeah, absolutely. So what's the biggest difference between the glamour of the idea of VC and what it's like to actually be a, a functioning, successful, active investor? Yeah, Mark, I think when you came into the office of Memory Serves and we were getting to know one another, we talked about this and I described venture capital as it's only good for people who are comfortable being on the sidelines as coach as opposed to player. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a tough transition for a lot of talented people to make. And, and it was for me included, you know, when I first started and just figuring out the balance of when to lean in on an investor or with an investor, I should say, who's having trouble with one thing or another, whether it's leadership, hiring people, sales model, software stability, whatever the issue is, you know, figuring out the balance of being helpful and not a micromanager, I think is just something that was, is complicated for a lot of VCs that I see. And I think on one hand, a, a venture capitalist or angel investor, if they're managing a syndicate, they take money from people. So they're a fiduciary and they're responsible for you know, shepherding that investment. So they can't just, hey, here's money and I'll see you, you know, next year and hope everything goes well. Many people do. But, you know, I, I think if you look at even the best venture capital funds in the Valley who spread a lot of money around, they provide a lot of operational and acceleration support for their founding partners. And we do the same. That's our approach. So finding that balance, I think, is is tough. And But you have to be comfortable sometimes without your hand on the steering wheel. And, you know, at the end of the day, it really is when done right is fairly an unglamorous job. There's a lot of detail. It's methodical. You know, I I was just Mm -hmm. talking about this last night with one of the founders that has just been on a meteoric rise from day one to CEO at at QA Symphony. And so that story went from 800 to 130 million in revenue in five years. And that's the one out of 85. You know, (laughs) I've got three deals that have gone straight up from the right. time you put the money in. And I, and we couldn't have predicted that. Right. We wouldn't be doing these things if we thought they would go straight up from time zero. But anyway, it, it's so rare to just catch a, a shooting star and just hang and when, on. And, 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 and when you do, though, being honest, e- even when you catch one, how often is some portion of that luck? It's just 
hard to know when the dynamics of a market are going to come together mm. that create mm. forces this, that just create kind of rapid equity value creation. Right. And in that specific case, the world really shifted very rapidly. It was a technological, you know, essentially change that really catalyzed its success. And they were right place, right time, and they captured it. But, and I'll give you another one in a minute that's interesting, but things have to happen. Things have to line up that sometimes right. you don't expect and you don't see. And so the, the lucky part is the, all the pieces, the catalysts and the dynamics come together. Mm-hmm. The part that I think the definition, or at least they say the, the definition of luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. Mm-hmm. Right. So our approach to investing is, look, let's underwrite so that if it's just steady as she goes and we're building a market and the market develops at a reasonable pace, we'll have a good return on investment. If we're fortunate enough where all the stars align and we catch lightning in a bottle, great, we'll capture the upside as well. Sorry to be so long-winded on this subject, but I appreciate you bringing up the question. Like 2020 for all of us has been a a strange year to say the least. Mm. But as we look across our portfolio, we were really invested in remote patient monitoring, telemedicine, Mm. streaming of live high school sports. There's an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this morning about one of our companies that is the largest live sports streaming company in the world. It's called Play on Sports, but the product that they market to consumers is called the NFHS Network. But this thing has accelerated so rapidly because the pandemic limited the number of fans that could go in the stands. Sure. And we were right place, right time with all these devices that automatically stream games. And mm. the business has quadrupled overnight. And who would have planned the, the pandemic? That's right. not something that was in our underwriting plans. But we were prepared and bad things happened in this case. to had an impact. Yeah. And so that's, the, so yeah, a lot of it's luck. We try to underwrite so that we capture these unexpected events. I've been on the other side of that too, though. I want you to talk a little bit about... When you started the thing, when you decided to institutionalize it, let's say, when it became more than just you cutting deals in your living room, were you trying to create something different? Were you trying to, to do something that you hadn't seen or were you just trying to participate in the market? It's a really good question, Mark. So the, I had two, I'll say loosely held, but convicted visions. One was that one of the things that shocked me when I really started thinking about this as a career, think about my own personal case. I came from the middle class and I had $63,000 in school debt when I came out of grad school and had to climb out of that. But one of the things that shocked me about as I really began to understand how this world worked, that really only a select, very select amount of people have access to this asset class. And that's because of securities laws. And so many of our laws, whether it's policy that gets passed, the intention is good, but the actual law of unintended consequences is, in this case, we're talking about securities law that restricts everyday Americans from investing in the innovation economy because they're, it's, they're in the private market. And so that was a big part of my vision was how do you democratize opportunity in the innovation ecosystem for mainstream Americans and, you know, what we would call the mass affluent. So middle class and above, or maybe upper middle class and above within the framework of, you know, laws that existed. As I get older and have had some success and start taking things on, I, 
that's an issue that I'm really going to take on more and more. I think it's not right that a very large swath of Americans can't participate because of securities regulation in the growthiest and the most exciting elements of our economy. We just had a very large exit in Tropical Smoothie Cafe, something we invested in as a fledgling franchisor. And, mm-hmm. But the, the best thing about that is we sent out 68 checks to investors, mm-hmm. over 300 checks we sent out, but 68 of them were over a million dollars. Wow. And, and over half of those were first-time millionaires. And the, the letters I'm getting, the thank you letters about you sent my kids to college, you've allowed sure. me to pay down my mortgage, now I have pure visibility and ret- comfort in retirement. So that just that opportunity only exists for people who, you know, the in this case, the SEC deemed were sophisticated enough to invest in it. And they made that in determination just based on net worth. And right. there's plenty of smart people, engineers and scientists and people who can make up their own mind who just haven't had time to accumulate net worth. And so part of our rapid emergence is that we found essentially a vein of capital that didn't require me to go run up and down Wall Street begging for right. institutions to invest in us. And I think all of our competitors are like, where are they finding all this capital? Well, <laughs> yeah, and now, now they know, but it's very hard to replicate what we've done. The second part of that was just, we just published a paper on this, looking at founders who were awestruck by West Coast Capital, like the be-all, end-all <laughs> to go raise money by West Coast Capital. And then looked at the difference on a pretty large data set. Okay, let's take this data set of roughly 400 companies over the last five years. What happened? where they start? who they raise from? And what were the outcomes of that? And as it turns out, for very few people, the kind of the West Coast option is the best option. Their model is to flood a business with a ton of capital. You fail fast. But if you're an entrepreneur, you're making a very distinct choice. And if you stumble at all in that model, it, it could be over very quickly. The flip side of that is if you are methodical and tranche in, but really raise a bunch of money once you've really gotten product market fit, you know, the probability of success is much higher and they end up keeping more of their company over the long haul because they didn't raise so much at time zero. I think entrepreneurs are making a very stark choice when they choose to get on that high velocity venture merry-go-round. And so I understood that intuitively, like, how do you become a really good, not only capital partner, but operating partner to mm-hmm. the founders? And that does, and by the way, that doesn't mean that we're a soft touch when we disagree on go-to-market strategy. And I think any of our founders <laughs> really? would say- I, I've, I've never heard that anywhere, Mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think any of our founders would say, sure. if it's specific to me, if I'm the lead on that deal, I love that guy, but I don't yeah. always like him. And that's our job. I mean, we try to do that professionally. We've seen a lot of movies. So if I see an entrepreneur that I think is scaling their sales team too fast or trying to sell before the product is built for scale, as a friend, it's our responsibility to let them know. And Mark, you've been an entrepreneur. You wouldn't be successful if you weren't a little crazy and listened to your own BS. Yeah, but on the other hand, sometimes you're listening to too much of your yeah, your own no, that's BS. A, so. One of the hardest the hardest things of the gig is figuring out where the heck that line is. You do have to be delusional, but you can't be delusional. But you know, I see that as our role is to try to educate, try to bring clarity into the mix so that they can optimize decisions to the extent that's possible when you're 
you know, right. trying to do the the improbable, if you will. And incidentally, that's been the hardest part, this building a platform for entrepreneurs that was a simultaneously a mirror for them to look at and really mm-hmm. say, okay, gosh, looking at the other companies in the BIP Capital Portfolio family, our sales efforts just aren't as good. We need to scale up or I need more leadership in a certain area, but also that was really supportive. And I think one of the things I hear back from founders all the time, you guys are always there for me, sometimes with a kick in the backside and other times to pick us up when we're down. I wanted to, to build a platform that did that. And I, I think for the most part we have, it's been the far harder part. I mean, we, we captured authentic demand, pent up demand, with all these individual investors that wanted to, to invest. That was the easy part. And then we just had to figure right. out how to bring all that together. The much harder part has been building a platform, an acceleration platform for founders that really worked for them and met them where they are at their various stages. And we've learned a lot. Yeah. I've been on both of those sides, investor and, and entrepreneur. And some of those things are the reasons why we're doing what we're doing now to try to accelerate post money for that year or 18 months or 24 months or whatever it ends up being, it's almost impossible to, to have the right people on staff. It's very difficult to have the sort of breadth of perspective that you need to have. It's very hard to build a deeply collaborative organization while everybody's also trying to make stuff happen in their verticals. And yet, when you look back on what makes things successful, it's the ability to do all of those things all at one time, all speaking to each other. And so that's part of why we launched the studio is to step into those environments and say, you don't have everything you need from a backbone perspective for this really important, really high risk moment. Let's augment that. Let's make this next 12 months happen so that then you can go forward and not knock the lights out. You've got to do things through that period to both de-risk the situation and to accelerate. And it's really hard to do both those things at the same time. Yeah. So- I really think what you guys are doing, Mark, is... I love the idea. I mean, if you just watch the early trends of the better or emerging VC platforms, Mm -hmm. people are investing more and more in the people that they've backed with capital on how to make them a great, if they're a founder and they're 26 years old, I'm sure uh, I started my first business when I was 29. And I'm sure in my mind, I thought I was a great CEO, but I wasn't. And so, and I'm not sure I am now. I think you and I both know, having done this, that if you're in your 20s, it doesn't mean you're not absolutely brilliant and have a brilliant idea, but there's no way you know everything you need to know about being a great CEO. So we've really positioned that way is how do we help great founders become great CEOs and or recognize that's not their bag and bring in a partner who they can really trust to help them do the parts that they don't want to do that that are necessary for success. And we've had a lot of founders that have stepped out of the CEO chair and let somebody else come in. But I think one of the things I'm really proud of, I, I recognize our competitors sell that against us all the time saying, well, hey, you may not end up being the CEO, but you know, if, if somebody really went and asked the question of the founder, almost always the founder has been the one to come to us and say, hey, I need help right. on the day-to-day stuff. I want to focus on the product. And I think that shows a level of maturity that really commands more capital, probably a higher valuation, those kind of things. And But I, I'm really proud of you know how we respected the founder's vision, but put all the, uh, the human resources and tools around them to succeed. And but as you mentioned, it's it's a really tough equation because there's a lot involved in there, not the least of which is the ego. 
So yeah, yeah, of course, everybody's. <laughs> everybody's yeah, the, no, yeah. That's what I meant. The the yeah, PCs, yeah. the, the yeah. investor, the LPs, the the founder, the, the people on the management team. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about a deal that got done, and tell me how it got done. I want to learn about the process of a- actually how it happens. What's replicable? What's not? in a real live scenario? Maybe I'll pick Ingenious Med and the, the founder's name was Dr. Steve Liu. He was running the hospitalist program here at Emory and uh, interesting background. He was a, a medical doctor, but also his undergrad was in computer science. He had noticed a problem in his day-to-day life and set out to solve it with software. And so this was right when I was coming back from the Bay Area and the basic story I heard was, look, there's this emerging thing. It's got traction. It's growing revenue. But the founder is a rounding physician. He rounds like two weeks a month, but it's still growing. And so it probably needs some maturation, and but definitely needs capital. Go meet him. So I went and met him in Steve's living room over in Vinings. And, and I just, I remember the three guys sitting in the room. They're now all great friends. At the time, you don't know who these people are. And so imagine... <laughs> Like you're walking into a doctor's townhome. The worldwide HQ is his living room. So all these things are going through your head like, what the, you know, what's going on? They don't even have an office. You know, you go in and you hear the pitch and what they're focused on. And I just remember being absolutely struck by, is this like a fraud? I don't think I've ever told Steve this, but, but how on earth could these guys have close to a million dollars in revenue? <laughs> they had no churn whatsoever. Once a physician used it, they were hooked. They had pricing leverage. The original application for Ingenious Med was written for the Palm Pilot. And so they were capturing charges on the Palm. The, the iPhone didn't even exist. But I remember like walking out of there and saying, gosh, if I just push away all of the anecdotal signals, they're operating in a living room. The doctor is spending half the time on it and he's successful, but most of the time he's over there healing sick people at, at Emory. Mm-hmm. and he hasn't been able to raise capital. My thought was, what in the heck is going on here? This has got to be a fraud or something's wrong. And so right. you start thinking, I, I remember walking out of his, his townhome thinking, I'm the idiot at the card table. Everybody else knows something I don't. So I spent a ton of time on diligence, you know, trying to get to the bottom of it. I rounded with physicians at the hospital to understand it, and every part of the story was great. Ultimately, the moral of the story is end up making the bet. And what I learned from that was that had nothing to do, like all the things that I was just assigning as negative to the deal or potentially negative to the deal really were more a function of what was happening in second and third tier innovation centers like Atlanta. The, the, the supply of good deals was high, or I should say, you know, demand from good companies for capital was really right. high. But there supply wasn't any capital money. Was, there wasn't any money. I finally figured it out, which is why I basically stepped on the gas and floored it right. and said, what an opportunity. And then the more I went around and met companies, whether it was VendorMate or Play on Sports or any of the number of companies, the early companies we did that kind of built our reputation, the more I was like, what a gold mine. And it's just unbelievable. I w- you couldn't drag me back to the Bay Area. I, I really felt like we had stumbled on a secret. And it really panned out. As you get older and you do more deals, one of the most frustrating things in in the world about trying to raise money is it feels like every time you go into a meeting, everybody's trying to find a reason to say no. 
to me, the Holy Grail is if you find something that has almost exactly like I just described with Ingenious Med, there was, you know, what my good friend here in town, Merrick First, who runs Flashpoint, always describes as authentic demand. In other words, there's just there the customer is compelled to buy the product because it just materially improves what they're doing. That was in spades in Ingenious Med. And then it had all these other problems around it that were highly fixable. And as I've started matured in this, what I really look for is scenarios where the problem that is being solved, they really care about that problem. And they are, it's at the top of their priority list to solve. And they're going to spend money on it. And when they do, that's going to form new habits. And that's the way they're going to do that going forward. If we find that coupled with young manager or great founder built great software, but this he hired his you know fraternity buddy to sell, and the guy has never really sold anything. <laughs> you know, th- those are actually I look at those as positives now, and we say, look, we're going to add more than capital here to help you scale this up. Let's go really build this the right way. Whereas back then, I looked at it as to your point, a reason to say no, or at least a reason to consider no. Now I'm quite confident after almost two decades of doing this saying, Hey, these are just problems that are easy to fix. As as long as you have the right type of partnership with the founder and they, there's a lot of trust and they say, okay, help me scale this. So there are things in there and in all of the deals that you look at that are not replicable, that someone had an end to you for some reason, because the right person knew the right person. But what is the core of the thing that is most replicable that people really should be focused on if they're a founder and they're going to go out and, and look for money, maybe even specifically look for money from you? What is the replicable activity or approach or philosophy that they can wrap their hands around and do something about that you'd want them to go after? Yeah, so I think really appreciate the question and I'm going to step up a level to answer it in saying that I think founders should look at picking their capital partner like a marriage. You date a lot of people, but you're not going to marry every single one of them. And and I think they should really spend time understanding how that fit and partnership is going to work. And so we've built a process that we think is as painless as it gets for diligence. If you answer 18 questions for me in fairly simple form, I, I can tell you up front if you're going to be with some degree of predictability, a high degree of predictability, whether that will be a good investment and a good partner for us. We try to get at a lot of that screening early, just so that we can say up front, this is just not going to be a fit. And my experience is most founders appreciate that. You get the 5% that yell at you and get angry, but that's just part of it. Just to put it in perspective, we look at it, you know, about a thousand deals a year now, and we do 1% of those. We see plenty of really good deals that just aren't a good fit for us. I look at my peers, other VCs, They get caught up in the story sometimes. And I just really appreciate a founder that comes in and says, look, here's the problem we're trying to solve. Here are the problems I have in solving it. I'm looking for a partner to help me solve these problems. Mm. And so just a straightforward, honest assessment of where people are, regardless of what business endeavor I go into, and including with founders. Like I, I love founders where I'm learning more from them than they are for me yeah. because even in their approach to the way they solve problems. And that's just, so I, I guess, and this is all 
I'm sure if you went out West, they would say, ah, whatever, small minded <laughs> East coast investor mentality. Right. But I, for my part, I really like it when an entrepreneur is straightforward about the challenges that they're dealing with is they're tough minded as much on themselves as they are on other things. And they're not, look, they got to be able to sell, but if they're so salesy that it's just, you feel like you're being BS that I'm not into. And I, I think is not you know good for us. Have you killed a deal in due diligence? Has a deal died in due diligence? Oh, yeah, no, often. Like you, like, you know, yeah. I, I'll just give you the numbers. Just call it a thousand to make it easy. About 60 to 70 deals a year make it into deep diligence where we're calling customers okay. and et cetera. And of those, I would say about 50% of those never, a little more than that, never consummate. And there's real reasons why. Why typically? I think in some cases, and I, I get this, not to be boastful at all, but when people find out what we're around the hoop now, because we built a brand, I think people start looking at the deal. And so one of the more frustrating things about mm -hmm. that is then you're in the middle of diligence and somebody comes and you pops get, a term sheet on off. top of you. <laughs> yeah, they, they pop a term sheet. They, yeah. they give you a, them a slightly oh, better yeah. valuation. They coattail some of your diligence and all of that. So do, do you find circumstances where you, don't, where you verify things that weren't true, where people were trying to sneak through the process in some way? Does that happen? Yeah, yeah that's about 20% of the fallout is just somebody told it, you, oh, we have a... It's not worth trying that. It's not worth trying. I mean, I've had a couple companies sneak through the process and... <laughs> You know, by the way, I blame myself for that, even though if we're not good enough in diligence to catch that, then that's on us. But on the flip side, you know, I think it's unethical to misrepresent or not disclose material facts. It really makes for a tough business partnership. And if somebody does that to us, don't look for any favors on the back end of that when we're in the deal. I promise founders one thing, it, unless it's one of those meteor shots, they're going to need their capital partner at some point in time. So it just seems like the wrong way to start a marriage. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm, I just think it's, it eventually comes out, whether it gets found out in diligence or the kind of chickens come home to roost later. I just think it's a really bad idea. And, but it does happen for sure, Mark. So on a related note, what's your stance on brilliant jerks? <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, and, and the, the fact that I don't even need to ask you what that is, right, tells you that I've thought about it a lot. Yeah. I think it, I, if I'm being honest, and I'm a little bit hip shooting here, but the, the degree of jerk matters. So on a scale of one to 10, if they're like a five, six jerk, but a 10 brilliant, you figure out ways to tolerate that especially if the underlying business is going well and right. you build and you around have. them and, you know. and you've done that, you've and invested in those. And sure. what if it's a 10, 10? Yeah, that's a tough one. Here's what I always find interesting. And I've never heard this talked about really, regardless of what your personal religious beliefs would be, everybody has some sort of sense of morality and what you're faced with at some point is essentially whether you want to admit it or not, trading off some sense of what you feel like violates some kind of moral norm, even if it's just like jerk, like they're a jerk to people, not even if it's something else. 
but you're trading off some moral norm or standard or something that would normally bother you, right? Would really bother you. And you maybe wouldn't be associated with that person because they can make you money. And yeah, I that's, mean, a, that's I, a really I, interesting place to be. But on a 1010, someone that you're you know, going to run a company for you, you really feel like they could make you money. But you also really would never work with this person under any other circumstances. How do you weigh, how do you weigh that out in your head? Yeah, no, I, I, one of my very early deals, I dealt with that exact same thing. And I just felt like there's just a limit to what I was willing to look the other way on in the name of making money. And so I, I think I'm probably scarred from that experience. Mm-hmm. Like for me, a 10 jerk is, is really a sociopath. It's, right. They have right. Absolutely... And they're out there and yeah. a lot of them run companies. They do. There are no yeah. doubt. And just outright lying or yeah. abusing people or any of that stuff that just that you just would never tolerate in your personal life was just like, Hey, that's just par for the course to be, that's the entry cost to be a part of this brilliance. Yeah. I, I think I just run from that now, but it's because of Me- that scarring event. And I, in many ways, I'm probably talking to younger, less experienced VCs. And I'd say, look, you'll come to the point where you realize that the good news is there's so many good deals out there that you just don't have to put up with that crap. And my view is if I see that early on and we really try to dig at that, is this really a partner in somebody that we're just going to love working with? Like, you know, earlier today, I had a very tough call with an entrepreneur who's trying to raise their next round and revenue acceleration hasn't quite happened. It's been good, but it hasn't quite happened like they thought it would, but they want a really outsized valuation. Mm, They want us to lead it. We've said, let's let somebody else come in and price it. We've got such Mm -hmm. a good relationship, but I adore this person. And we can have those tough conversations without it becoming like some kind of where I feel like I'm being manipulated. And I I love working with people like that, not people who are lying, misrepresenting, tank the whole relationship if they don't get what they want. Don't respect that we've got a job to do and we're fiduciaries to limited partners. And yeah, so that's the way I would say it. I'm probably, and it sounds like you too, Mark, as you get older, you just get less tolerant of just that. Sort of the mythic, you know, Steve Jobs, Travis, uh, as long as they'll deliver on the business front, it doesn't matter how they behave. And then the other risk assessment part of that is that's also then the culture that they build. And the bigger the company becomes and the worse the cultural problems become. And at some point, all of that's going to have to be unwound. I had to go through a sociopath in order to know that was even possible. I don't know that I knew at that time that someone right. actually would, with everything that's in them, say different things to different people, depending on the context. And, and the second I get a sniff of that at all, I'm out because I just can't, yeah. you can't trust in, any of that. And I'm not going to go through that again. But number one, you're giving me flashbacks, but two, I think you bring up a great point that I failed to mention, but that is there's risk in that, in the culture you build, in the, if they tell one person, one thing and another person, another, and they're always manipulating to get what they want. Eventually you just never know what to believe. Do you trust the numbers that they're producing yeah. in the board deck? If they're always shading and selling to get what they want, it's just, that's a version of what I said to you earlier of, I really like that founder who's just, okay, here's the problem. Even defining a problem is hard if you really think about it. And what problem am I truly trying to solve? People who are really tough on the problem, intellectually honest, are the people I like to be around. 
Mm-hmm. And to your point, that kind of, I'm going to sell you into my vision and look over here. I'm not going to show you this fact over here. I'm gonna, I just, I've learned to run from those people. I think what's more complicated is the brilliant jerk who's like a five jerk, but they're not a sociopath. They may be on the spectrum. They may be a brilliant engineer. They're not super friendly to people. That's a different Uh, issue. Sure. It's a different issue. And we can build around that. But look, if this were easy, if it were as easy as that 10 point scale that I just laid out, it's not. Humans are complex and dynamic and Mm -hmm. it's really hard to see all that in a compressed kind of 45 to 30 day diligence process. We've gotten better at it, but certainly we miss at times. And it's an unfortunate part of it. I think the industry is going to, in some ways, be forced to grapple with a lot of that anyway. When you look at what's happened in like the impact investing world, the world is shifting how they feel about bifurcated doing good versus making money. And they're less willing to put up with some of that stuff. I mean, all of that sort of starts to collapse in on itself until it all means the same thing, until morality and how stakeholders and employees and customers are treated becomes important and held accountable by investors in a, in a way that didn't exist previously. And, and then there's risk in that and backing the wrong person. Yeah, this is so I'll tell you, that's a really good point. And I'll tell you something that I look for that tells me a lot about a person. I am not a big fan of founders who don't democratize, like every single person in our venture fund, including our executive assistant, has carried interest in our venture fund. I feel strongly Mm -hmm. about that. You're part of the team. When a founder calls and they need to reach one of the deal leads, I want you just as passionate and understanding why and why it's important as as maybe the deal lead themselves would be. And so we're all rowing. It's all part of what we're doing. And I project that onto the leaders of the companies. And if I find a founder who their whole objective is to keep all the equity for them and not democratize that when their team, that tells me a lot about them. I just do not like Hmm. founders who keep all the equity in exchange for we'll do your dry cleaning. And, (laughs) you know, we are trying... Look, Mark, I'm sure you're just listening to you talk here. I'm sure you share my view. The older you get, you realize you can't take it all with you. I'll be 50 uh, in 22 more days here. I'll probably run two more funds at VIP. And, you know, then it's time for somebody else to lead the firm. And I'm well aware of that. What I'm most focused on is leaving that heritage and then them going forward and helping other people move up in life. And uh, when I find a founder who... It's all about them and how they ring the till. And I just, yeah. and that's a personal preference, but I don't invest in those people. And, and there's plenty of stories here in town where people have kept all the equity and made a ton of money. And Great. ironically, those are the same people that talk a lot, but they don't necessarily mm-hmm. give a lot back to the community. If you really look at how much capital they're injecting into the community and how, how much, you know, mentorship and right. time they spend. And so I, I, I'm not a fan of that. I recognize again, takes all types and there's different ways to skin the cap, but I I don't like backing people that aren't, you know, in it for the long haul and in it for the betterment of, of the communities we live in, not even the world, just what we're trying to do in Atlanta is just make this community super vibrant. And hopefully a lot of people say, gosh, they really did their part to help build a, and expand wealth. And then those people do it. And then those people do it. And, you know, if more people do that, we'll wake up one day and, all of a sudden we have a something that looks like Silicon Valley. 
I've sat on panels. You know, what I'm thinking of was not recent. It was probably five or six years ago, maybe even a little more than that, where I sat next to a partner in a a local institutional investor when asked about access to capital in Atlanta would say, yeah, you know what? There's really just not enough good deals here. There's plenty of money. And then I had to follow them (laughs) and say, with all due respect, first of all, it's not surprising that the one person with money thinks there's plenty. And second, I I don't, you know, these are systems. I don't know any markets really where like the deal flow just developed to be ridiculously amazing. And then all the money followed like that. That's not how things work. And when there's not enough smart money, then the requirements for pitches get worse and it all devolves. And when there's good smart money, more is demanded of entrepreneurs and the pitches get better and it all goes upward, but it's a system. My background being in statistics, I, I, I tend to discount anecdotal comments of people. Oh, there's no good deals in Atlanta. Look at it on paper and look at the, look, just sheer numbers. How many on average uh, deals get funded or are available for funding annually over the last 10 years. We do a lot of that research and publish it in State of Startups for the Southeast, state by state. And I think one of the things I'm proud of is I think we really have a data-driven understanding, and then we'll make educated comments on that. And then I think there's the, I don't know, maybe the the landscape architect's view of the world, which is, gosh, I see that hill, and it's a hill eroding, and it's, there's a mud, and no trees, and but it's what you can make of it. I think if, if you look at the world as really just a way to transact, in other words, how many deals are there with 10 million of revenue growing at 60% a year and burn notwithstanding, usually they tend to ignore that fact in Atlanta that I can flip in five years. Maybe that's true. We don't, we do look at things like that, but I think there's plenty of that to go around given the size of various people's funds. And, but I think the other way to look at the world is, like I said, the landscape architect looks at a hill or some piece of land and knows what it can become. And I I think if you just look at the returns of, again, not to be boastful, but us and other firms who take more of a building versus a transaction approach to this. In other words, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to flip it five years from now. That's We don't look at the world like that at all. It's what could this become and how do I help this entrepreneur really scale into that? Sometimes the first two years of that process, we're not showing any markups at all in, mm. to investors. It's, so the, the return profile, if you will, is curvilinear. But I think a lot of people aren't willing to look at any deal, let alone deals in Atlanta like that. And so I I just would say, if you look at our book, we've produced top decile and top quartile returns consistently. And at least early in our life, the vast majority of deals were in Atlanta. Today, about 50% are in Atlanta and the other 50% are out of the state. For really early stage concepts, my competition is really an army of angels. Mm -hmm. And And I think the check that, to me, the glaring myth in the market is we've got something big. It's a huge addressable market. We need a 20 to $50 million Mm. check to scale. Right. That big Series B check for hugely promising concepts. And we're going to try to fill that gap. It takes time to do that. You need a really large fund to do that. There's plenty of room for it. There's plenty of deals here in town that could support three or four really large funds. 
that are picking, call it, I don't know, five deals across the course of a five-year investment window where they're dropping 20 to 50 million in that deal. Like QA Symphony is a great example yep. that they had to go to New York to get a check from Insight yep. to, to do that. That check just wasn't in Atlanta. Nobody sitting around the table could write that kind of check. So does that get solved internally? Does that get solved internally? Or at some point does somebody come here? So I'm gonna I'm gonna be emphatic here because I have strong opinions on this one. There just has to be that fabric that is created to to really capitalize things that I think local matters. Capital yep. is mobile globally, but it's usually paired with local capital and local knowledge. And I just it's one of those things, particularly if the things I said earlier are true, and that is that education platforms, real connectedness with the entrepreneur, all of those things matter. Those are just things that are easier to do. I don't care how many Zoom meetings you have. Sometimes <laughs> you need to get across the table and you need to sit down personally, or you just need to go out to dinner and drinks and talk to a founder about what's really on their mind. It's just that's easier locally. I've said it a hundred times. Great. Another fund comes in there's room for three or four really big funds here in town. It doesn't mean all their deal flow is being done in Atlanta, but oh, no, of course not. yeah. And, but that check just is, it's hard to get. You really yeah. have to go West or North for it. And it tends to be, if you were to compare when an Atlanta company gets it versus when a Bay area company gets, it, it's a couple years later. And, mm-hmm. and, and then I think if you flip this, if I'm in Silicon Valley, and the getting's good, and we're yep. driving great returns. Why would I ever disrupt that operation and go launch a satellite yeah. operation? That, in a that's what I've always said. Life? I got more deal flow within a block of me than I know what to do with. And frankly, the five or six deals that are like super hot or in a hot category or that come out, like I'll hear about those. Someone will tell me about those and I'll have a shot. Yeah. Why would I uproot and come if I'll hear about the three or four that are no brainers? <laughs> And otherwise, I've got more than I can do right now. Totally. So I tell people, Atlanta, just stop. Build it locally and you'll get everything you wanted. And then we're self-reliant and, okay, try to attract a few funds to town. But the real way this gets built is where all of that fabric is interwoven within our community. And I feel strongly about that. And I'm going to keep saying it. That's the way it's built. Any way you study it, you have to have local capital to build a vibrant uh, innovation ecosystem. It's just a fact. Agreed. But I love where you guys are. We should collaborate more on that. And I may have something, uh, an idea that I want to see if you guys want to spin up in the studio. But hey, Mark, really good to talk Thank to you. you. Love what you, you guys too. are doing with podcast. Right. Yep. Take care, right. bud.